Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to the Compliance Report International Edition. Today I start a new series with Tim Kazanoff-Barterhoff. Tim is a compliance practitioner for 17 years who has focused on high-risk markets, largely in former Soviet states, including Ukraine and Russia. He and I are going to start a podcast series entitled Compliance Man Goes Global. In each podcast, we will take uh, two concepts, or maybe even misconcepts, from the in-house compliance perspective. We check out if these concepts work at emerging and indeed high-risk jurisdictions. One of us will advocate for a particular uh, concept, identifying pros, and the second, cons. And then we're going to try to see if the underlying concept is really the conventional wisdom. I think you will find this is a fascinating series. I think it's one that you'll have a lot of fun with. And I think it's one that you can utilize as you think through your compliance program going forward. If you think about what Wei Chen has said regarding the evaluation of corporate compliance documents, it's that she wants and the Department of Justice wanted compliance practitioners to think, and that's what we're going to ask you to do in this series. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Compliance Report International Edition, which is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again for another episode of the Compliance Report International Edition. Today, I begin a very interesting and I think you'll find fun series with Tim Kazanov Batarov, uh, well uh, well known compliance practitioner in the uh, what we would have used to have called the Soviet Union, but we now call Russia, and from uh, states that comprise um, countries or or uh, states in the former Soviet Union. Tim has practiced compliance for about seventeen years, and primarily in what we would regard as a high risk area. And so I wanted to explore with Tim how a a U.S., a U.K., a Western Europe, a South American compliance officer might need to think about doing compliance in um, the former Soviet states or the former CIS or the current countries that comprise uh, Central Asia. And so Tim and I have come up with something we've called Compliance Man Go Global podcast for the Compliance Report International Edition. And it really starts with a simple premise. In each podcast, we take two typical concepts or maybe even misconceptions from the uh, certainly U.S. in-house compliance perspective. We check out to see if these concepts work in emerging jurisdictions. In each podcast, we're going to divide the roles between ourselves. One of us will ad- advocate a particular concept identifying pros. And the second will uh, provide arguments, finding the cons, and trying to convince the audience that we face a pure myth and that what may be what we'd call in the United States the conventional wisdom may not be that at all. Uh, as a result, we hopefully will come up with some practical solutions for the in-house compliance practitioner. But if you have listened to Wei Chen, the former Department of Justice Compliance Counsel, in any of her remarks since she left the DOJ, she said that what the Department of Justice wants you to see, wants the compliance practitioner to do is think. 
That's the reason they issued the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And that's what Tim and I want you to do. We want you to think about your compliance program. Think about what works in the emerging markets of Central Asia as opposed to some other jurisdiction that you may have your compliance program. So we're going to throw some uh, hypotheticals out. We're going to discuss them. And then we're going to ask you to think. Uh, Tim, before we get started, I wanted uh, to see if you could tell the audience a little bit about your initiative of Compliance Man. Who is Compliance Man and what are you trying to communicate with him? Thank you, Tom. For those of our listeners who didn't get a chance to learn about Compliance Man, it's my pleasure to, to talk about him a bit. So the Compliance Man of Integrity Corp is a series of comics which we developed in order to communicate basic things with regard to compliance profession as we have seen it. So there is a chance to learn more about the compliance routine, about challenges which we have in a kind of animated, illustrated, and we still believe in a humorous format. So that's just what we wanted to, to highlight with regard to compliance, man. Well, let's, uh, let's really jump right into the first question, Tim, and or the first concept. And really, what once again, what we're trying to do is get people to think. So the arguments we're going to banter back and forth, they're not all of the arguments that you can make or even all of the, uh, the ways to consider it. But uh, let's just jump right into it. So uh, here's the situation. We have detailed policies in the corporate headquarters. We have deployed those policies at our subsidiaries located in emerging markets literally across the world. Um, we here at the corporate headquarters think, uh, okay, we, we, we've done everything we need to do. We've followed the law. We have written policies and procedures, and now we've rolled them out. So uh, what are some of the arguments you have based on your in-house experience to prove that policymaking from headquarters is an effective, uh, not only effective compliance program, but it's also going to provide to you the best defense if uh, a regulator comes knocking either in the local jurisdiction or in your home country. Well, Tom, I think I have four arguments to prove that. First of all, I believe it is vital to have a clearly articulated rule of the games in written form. Specifically, it is important in civil law countries where the so-called black letter form of document is a formal standard. Therefore, for example, in many CIS countries, for instance, absence of particular formal requirements to employee in the corporate policy simply means that such corporate requirements or employee's duty just does not exist. That's my point number one. The second argument. You can train personnel on a specific policy. You can refer to a specific policy or its particular provision when you talk to senior management. You can impose discipline for violation of the policy. There is no way, at least how I can see, to implement a compliance program at a high-risk market referring all the time to spirit, reputation, or integrity. It just won't work there. That was my second argument with regard to this point. My argument number three would be the following. When you have a policy, you have a universal standard, which is common both for the headquarters and operational unit anywhere in the world. In a corporate reality, there is no way 
to employee located anywhere in the world just to ignore written corporate policy. That's my practice and that's what I have seen at high-risk markets as well. And probably my last argument with regard to that would be the following. It is a regulatory requirement per the, the guidance from the Department of Justice and the Securities Exchange Commission. So it looks that I'm about to win, Tom, with regard to this thing. So you certainly raised some, some very interesting and I think uh, cogent arguments, Tim. But I think there's some equally important counter-arguments, and, and frankly, I have a few questions on a couple of your arguments. So um, I guess the first argument, and, and I would probably have to state that this may be one of the weaker arguments, nevertheless, it may be that um, a corporate anti-corruption policy, which is satisfactory in the U.S., might not, nece might not necessarily be um, fully or partially enforceable in a foreign country or formerly legal per the local laws. Now, I recognize that there is no country on earth which affirmatively says you can bribe our government officials, but just because it's a law in the United States may not mean it's a law in uh, the local country. And I can, But I can see how that um, could certainly cause confusion. Uh, but the second argument is... Um, really the, the legal part of this, which is if you have a either an ambiguous or complicated legal language in the policy, that's certainly not going to work uh, even in the United States, but very much so overseas. Um, the um, translation part of it uh, is always important. Certainly the Department of Justice has indicated that you have to translate into local language, but uh, just because you translate doesn't mean you've got the translation correct. So you have to have a, an accurate translation. Uh, regulators expect companies to have a paper program, and although you have articulated a very important part of a program, it's still the paper part. Um, the written, you have to go beyond the written part to actually do compliance or operationalize compliance. But uh, Maybe let me go back to a couple of uh, points you raised. So on argument number two, um, you kind of end by saying that um, if you talk about the spirit or reputation or integrity or terms that may be not as well defined, often that will not simply work in, in emerging markets. And I guess the question I would have to you is, why not? Well... I would think it's because of the legal framework which is based on uh, written rules. So uh, we do not have here a case law. We have a so-called civil law system. That would mean that everybody is used to look at the black letter. So uh, the courts do not have the power to interpret laws more than what they have seen you know, in the, in, in the law itself. That probably would be my point, considering the fact that here in the high-risk markets with the civil law system, a black letter rule would prevail and obviously supersede all types of things like spirits and uh, will and things like that. And so, and then on your um, argument number three, you talked about having a universal standard. And I guess the, the question I would have is, I've often trained 
uh, employees outside the United States. And one of the really most constant, if not criticisms, but certainly questions is, uh, just because it's a law in the United States, why do I have to follow it in Norway or Russia or Nigeria or you name the country? Uh, do you feel like uh, employees in emerging markets really want to be held to the same standard, or is there some sort of equality given by having the standard apply both in the United States and in markets outside the U.S.? Well, thanks for this question, Thomas. I am afraid to be a bit controversial with my answer, as in terms of the extraterritorial implication of the U.S. law, as you have seen, probably people are not that comfortable all the time. In the same time, here we go back to the concept which you addressed a bit early on with regard to the spirit and things like that. People want to be honest. People want to work in a transparent organization. That uh, argument helps us here to promote integrity and compliance across the organization, despite the fact whether the U.S. law applies in this specific case, or we just want to promote ethics as a concept, as a platform for the organization. So, Tim, I think we've explored several different uh, issues around this, but I was wondering if really there's a uh, an approach that you might recommend for someone like myself or someone listening to this podcast who is in America, who uh, is facing moving to an emerging market, whether that either be through organic growth the company decides they want to move into that market, or perhaps even they acquired a company um, that has not done business in the United States and has not been subject to the FCPA previously, but now is a part of a U.S. company and therefore is subject. Do you have any uh, recommendations on what they might do at this point? Well, I would think if we talk about policymaking, it's a very important type of things and it is required by the by the DOJ and it's absolutely clear to everyone. In the same time, as you have said, it should be tailored. It should be adopted. The language of the document should be duly communicated to people because we don't want to have, the, you know, this legal type of documents, which sometimes are not even 100% clear even to the, to the lawyers. So I would recommend to draft policies which will be in compliance with local laws, in plain language, duly translated to for 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 the for local audiences. So I guess um, what I'd like to end this section, Tim, on is that really uh, you need to ensure that your senior managers, both at the headquarter and the country management uh, in high risk market, uh, know the rules of the game. Obviously, those rules are somewhat set by the U.S. law, but they're also set by um, the local markets. And you have to apply the U.S. laws to local markets. And so it can be a, um, uh, I don't want to say complicated, but certainly a challenging task. And that really leads to uh, the second uh, question I wanted to raise with you today. And I think it really uh, is something that every com chief compliance officer uh, in any company needs to think about, and it's the following. Um, should a compliance specialist, a compliance expert, uh, uh, or a compliance representative be located in a high-risk market, uh, as in located in that market, uh, officing there, and would it significantly mitigate a corporate compliance risks? 
So um, maybe let me take uh, kind of take the lead on this one, and I'll, let me throw out some arguments, and then uh, you can respond or uh, really uh, critique what I have said. It's obvious that having a person uh, in the compliance department physically in a high-risk market allows uh, promptly to identify, tackle, and escalate risks, uh, compliance risks or compliance potential compliance violations or indeed compliance violations to the attention of management and compliance at the corporate headquarters. Um, the, uh, it's not simply uh, being on the ground, but it's a little bit broader than that because you're going to develop relationships with people. They're going to be more comfortable in telling you things. It's going to be, uh, uh, you may see things or hear things that you wouldn't necessarily hear if you're sitting in your office at the corporate headquarters. So second, a local compliance officer is the best person for the compliance team to approach on a national business environment and apply integrity laws of a particular jurisdiction. So um, this helps in compliance. Uh, if you have, uh, you spoke quite eloquently about the differences in civil law and uh, common law, uh, which the United States and, and England uh, are typically under and uh, companies, excuse me, Countries that were English colonies typically have common law as their basis as well, and there are some substantive bases. And so having someone who understands really the difference in a, a common law and a civil law, I think, really can help from the compliance perspective as well. Number three, the implementation of a corporate compliance program at a distance seems to be non-efficient. And we talked about that a little bit in uh, the first question. But you need, uh, I think you really need to have a, a person located on the ground in each jurisdiction. They can certainly assist in the management of local matters, which arrive from the routine business activity, but they're also there as a resource. And if a local business uh, development person has a question, uh, obviously someone in the same time zone, someone they can walk into the office or call, having that person be a part of the team, uh, certainly you're aware of the um, the evaluation of corporate compliance document, uh, corporate compliance programs document that came out from the Department of Justice in February of this year with the mandate to operationalize compliance. And that really means push it down into the very DNA of your company. And, and I would advocate to you that by having a compliance specialist uh, physically located in a high-risk area, it's going to help operationalize uh, compliance programs. So uh, with that somewhat, um, those kind of three points, uh, do you have some uh, points you want to either throw back at me or questions that uh, have come up from some of the things I've raised? Well, Tom, thanks for sharing your views. As you might, was, as you might expect, I would, I would have some objections or some critique with regard to the, these arguments. First of all, what we see in practice that you do not necessarily get the lawyer when you're hiring a person as a compliance guy here in the emerging markets, or experienced lawyer, so to say, or a lawyer who feels comfortable to explore matters which go beyond traditional legal area, in the contract and drafting in-house policies. In such circumstances, having a person in each country does not bring any added value to compliance efforts. What else? A couple of words on organizational hierarchy. To start with, According to laws of many countries, 
of, for example, former Soviet Union, being an employee of a locally incorporated entity, national compliance officer reports to country head, no matter what global corporate matters prescribes. This would mean that dependency on local management remains in any case. I'm sorry if I destroy illusions of compliance community at corporate headquarters, but it, it works like that. Probably one more argument here. It's about budgeting, of course. Emerging markets pose the highest risk from enforcement perspective. Due to financial restraints or any other corporate reasons, we have seen that in many cases, corporations have been looking for compliance personnel, asking just a minimum, a couple of years of professional experience and legal diploma, basically. Would you rely on such team members at high-risk markets reality? So you raised some very interesting uh, critiques, Tim, but let me, uh, let me uh, push back a little bit on your last point around budgeting, because this is something that the U.S. Department of Justice has really talked about consistently. Starting in the 2012 FCPA guidance, they talked about resources available for the compliance function. In the 2016 FCPA pilot program, they were specifically discussed not only the resources available to the compliance function and to the chief compliance officers, but the uh, pay scales, and more, most importantly, the uh, subject matter expertise of the compliance specialist. They wanted uh, some documentation or some indication that the person hired as a compliance specialist really actually did know compliance. And then again, once again, with the uh, 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document, they asked some very specific questions about resources being made available to the compliance practitioner. Now, if you have written about risk assessments and how a risk assessment uh, can be used and should be used, and if a company has properly assessed their risks and understands that moving into a high-risk emerging market or uh, moving into an emerging market is truly high risk, it would seem to me that they would want to put a quality high-risk resource in place, and that's really something that the Department of Justice, at least, uh, is agreeing that should be done uh, going forward. So, um, the um, was there any... Um, general guidance or some wrap-up that you might suggest the compliance practitioner or the com compliance function follow on this question? Well, to start with, I would, I would agree with your arguments and thanks for sharing them. Just to wrap up a bit what probably we have discussed this time, I would say that uh, I would agree that a company would want to have a person at the country of high risk. He, that's 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 obvious, and I agree with you. Of course, it should be an experienced person who will have authority and powers to effectively manage risks in particular jurisdiction. Of course, it's about risk-based approach. So we understand there are constraints, the budgets, things like that, and of course, we understand that at high-risk markets, a company should possess resources uh, by having specific, uh, uh, by having experienced people, duly trained, who will be able to manage the risks. So, I think that that I I I mentioned all things which I wanted to mention, and I agree with your arguments with regard to to this point. So, Tim, um, 
this has really been a uh, fascinating exploration, and I really uh, enjoyed your practical tips that you wrapped up with us uh, here. For those uh, listening, I've um, been visiting with Tim Kajanov. Batarov, and Tim is a compliance practitioner in, uh, I think you're in Russia, isn't that right? Yes, yes, Russia. Tom. So uh, what we've been trying to do in this podcast, and we're going to do over the next several podcasts for the Compliance Report International Edition, is focus on emerging markets and some of the challenges that Tim has seen in his 17 years of compliance practice. So, Tim, uh, with that, I look forward to our next episode of Compliance Man Go Globe. Thanks, Tom. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me today. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Box again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Compliance Report International Edition, where we have the first edition of Compliance Man Goes Global. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help get the word out about the only compliance report or compliance podcast focusing on international issues. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Compliance Man Goes Global, and I hope you will join us for ensuing episodes. The Compliance Report International Edition is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.